Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you. Uh, today, we're going to look at the second half of this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, or more accurately, the parable of the two sons. Last week, we were looking at the younger son, this week at the older son. And we're going to see the contrast between the two and their reaction to the father's grace and love. I'm going to read uh, just the second part of this par- a parable from Luke 15, um, and then we'll pick up the story. So here we go, the second half of the parable of the two sons. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him safe home. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered, but But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it informs us, encourages us, teaches us, warns us, instructs us, and leads us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would own this, your word, right now. I pray as we hear uh, the things that you're describing, Jesus, in this story, that we would take them to heart, that we would live them out, that we would adjust our thinking and our decision-making because you've spoken to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've said, this is the parable of two sons. Often it's taught as the parable of the prodigal son, but actually there are two sons in this story. And we're going to look at the younger, the older son. Last week we looked at the younger. The younger, of course, uh, was rebellious and disrespectful. Um, and he, it seemed that the younger son was absolutely hell-bent on, uh, on disqualifying himself from the father's love and acceptance. And yet he, even with all that rebellion, with all the insults, with the, uh, with the going against convention, with the squandering of money, uh, and all of it, he doesn't manage to disqualify himself. The father's love is more powerful And as he comes to his senses, he returns, hoping somehow to earn his way back into the father's household. The father sees him and rushes to him. Before he's even got all he wants to say kind of out of his mouth, he's embraced back into the family. And that's a shock enough of itself. But today, brothers and sisters, it gets even more shocking. In fact, this part of the story is what would have shocked those first hearers even more. You see, the the people Jesus is speaking to, uh, uh, this nation is a religious nation. It's built around laws and rules which are religious or maybe you'd say moral laws. And so for people to break those moral laws was shocking. Um, uh, And we see that clearly in the younger son, don't we? It's it's obvious that he's broken these moral laws. That's clear. Yep, that's that's what he's done. And and we understand that. We get it. It's clear. We we might have even personal examples. We know people who maybe have lived reckless lives, um, and so it's familiar to us. But this part of the story is where it really 
bites. Because here is someone in the older son who has kept the rules. Here's the son who's done the right thing. He's worked hard all his life. He says that, doesn't he? He says, I've worked hard all these years. I've obeyed all your orders, but I didn't get this. And actually, the shocker from the story is that the older brother doesn't get to the feast at the end. And if you like, the whole of this story is aiming towards that feast at the end. It's an allegory, as it were, for an eternal reward. And that acceptance into the father's house. And actually, the older brother doesn't get there. This would have incensed those religious people listening to this story. A lot of what Jesus did did exactly that. It incensed the religious people. And here's a story pointedly telling them your religious behavior, your keeping of the rules is not enough to save you. And that's for all of us to hear. Both sons in this story needed grace. And that's what we've been talking about these last weeks. Both needed grace. They both needed the unconditional love and acceptance of the father. Access to the party, which the, son, the younger son was welcomed into, was required for both of them. But the older son doesn't get there. The reason being, the older son wants to earn his place at the feast. That's how he thinks access to God or access to the Father is achieved, by earning it. If I work hard enough, if I do enough, if I'm morally kind of upright enough, then actually it's my right. And that's exactly what he's saying to his father. I, I have earned this. Why haven't I got this? I've earned it. And the father says, that's not, that's not how it works. That's not how grace works. However good you are, brothers and sisters, you can't earn grace. That's not how grace works. That's why we need to talk about it. Grace can only be given and received. It can't be earned. You can't take it from God. You can't earn it from God. You can only receive it freely from him, by faith, in fact. Well, with a little proviso to that, yes, you could earn God's love, but it will be by absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. Holiness in, in its entirety. Uh, and it, you look into your heart for one microcosm, one second. Uh, I know that because I look into mine and think, oh my goodness, I'm so far from holy. Even on my sort of, you know, I suppose my best behaved day ever, I'm so far short of God's holiness. So I can't earn it. And so to think that I can is actually this just old-fashioned pride. This lack of humility in the older son is going to keep him out of the feast at the end of the story. My friends, this part of the story is much more directed at the religious than it is at the rebel. And we need to hear that, particularly those of us who've been in church for a long time or have been walking with God for a long time. Jesus told another story, another parable in Luke 18. I'm going to read it to you in a moment. Because he so much wanted to tell the people this is how it works. And he knew that this internal bias within each of us is to think that I can somehow earn my way into God's love to the Father. 
in fact. And so he, he, he very much was warning people, this isn't how it works. You think it works this way, but it doesn't work this way. And so in Luke 18, he told another story, a story of, uh, of two men, a story of a tax collector. And a tax collector is, is kind of a, an umbrella term for a sinner, someone who is living a life which is uh, unrighteous, uh, kind of going against God's ways, breaking the rules. Uh, and, and then also of a Pharisee who, by definition, was one who absolutely kept all the laws and rules, the older brother, in fact. And this is the story he tells. And he tells it with some explanation at the beginning. So Luke 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I mean, it sounds, quite, it sounds a bit like a Christian. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a worry, isn't it? Um, the second part here. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He couldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went away satisfied, justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. To receive God's grace, we need to humbly come to him, to leave aside all that we think we might have earned, all that we think is righteousness in our own eyes and hearts, and say, God, I, I've sinned against you and others. I'm in need of rescue. And the story of the Bible is both a story of people coming to understand their need for divine intervention, or all is lost, and the access, the actual story of divine intervention, which is, of course, Jesus coming and dying on a cross for us. That's the story, and that's why the story of the prodigal son, the story of the two sons, is the story of the whole Bible. And in it is this, is this warning because we have this internal bias, this internal sense, I can earn it. I think I can earn my own salvation. And yet to the casual hearer, and I think I mentioned this last week, to, there was a, a teacher that I once worked with, and she said, it seems so unfair. The, the, older, the older brother, the older son in the story, he does everything right. And, and yet he is the one who doesn't get to the party at the end. What, it just doesn't seem fair. It seems almost scandalous. Grace is scandalous. It is. Are you serious? Those who do the right thing, work hard, keep the rules, they don't automatically get God's blessing and reward? Really? Yes. That's this story. That's what Jesus is telling us. He's explaining it clearly, as clearly as he possibly can. So this is dramatically a story often for Christians to hear, often older ones, often people who've been around a bit, people like exactly like me, in fact, exactly like me, who, who, who very easily have a tendency to think, yeah, I've worked hard, I've, I've worked for God all these years, I, I've given up a career to do, to do this. Surely, surely I deserve God's blessing. Surely I've somehow 
earned it. Let me sort of talk about how this story could go for many Christians. Christian life begins well. It starts with an amazing revelation of God's grace. God loves me. Jesus has, without merit on my part, poured out his love onto me. I have received forgiveness and mercy. He's wiped the slate clean. I'm part of his family. I'm a son. I'm a a child of God. I have all the inheritance of, of Jesus himself. Wow, I'm just overwhelmed. And then time begins to pass, and I learn how Christians ought to behave. And then this inbuilt bias towards pride and self-righteousness seeps in. I start to think, well, actually, I think, uh, you know, I, I think my life should go well because I've, I, I've done things right. I've, you know, as the, as, the older, as the older brother said, you know, I've always done what I've been told to do. And, I, you know, I, I keep the rules and I, I behave well. I'm nice to people and I serve God. Therefore, God owes me a good life. Isn't that how it works? No, it isn't. That isn't how it works. And we need to watch and, and be wary of that as Christians. So this part of the message really is for Christians. That's, that's who the religious people would have been in shock as they heard Jesus tell this, or both of these stories, in fact. So how do I know if that older brother tendency is alive in me? And of course, it's not that we're all one and all of another. There are, there are corners in my heart which, which are like this and there are others which are enjoying God's grace that is freely given but we just need to keep an eye open for it and there are some ways of thinking that we need to look out for that will help us in this journey here we go I've just got I've got six of just to look at so this is for Christians really at the moment am I more impressed with my own behavior than I am with God's love how do I know whether I'm impressed with it or not? Do I think more about it? Where, where, where does my mind go? Where do I direct my mind? Is it towards the good things that I do or is it towards the great things that God has done? Listen, it's not that people shouldn't do good things, of course, and God does lead us into good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. Of course, that's true. But that's not the basis of my relationship. That's not where I should be thinking. That's not where my mind should sort of rest. It should rest in God's unmerited favor. So am I, firstly, am I more impressed with my own behavior than God's love? Secondly, am I, here's a a telling one, and these are, brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to myself absolutely as much as to anybody else. Am I annoyed when good things happen to other people because I work harder and behave better than they do. <laughs> does, it, does that annoy me? Some, it, it can do. It, it can be like, but hang on, what, why did it go so well for them? They're not even as nice as I am. Brothers and sisters, God's love is not about blessing the nicest person. <laughs> it's, about, it's about rescuing people. Anyway, we'll, we'll come on to that. So that's the second point. Am I annoyed when good things happen to other people because I think... I work harder and behave better than they do. Thirdly, how is my heart with regard to forgiving others? Am I quick to forgive or am I unwilling to forgive? And here's the thing, here's the kicker with this one, because I would never behave that way. I would never, I, I can't forgive because that, that, I, my, I would never do, I would never do that. How could, how could they possibly behave like that? 
And I'm comparing what? My own behaviour. Thinking I'm better. I've somehow earned an easier life. That's the third one. Fourthly, is it devastating and fearful when things go wrong in my life? Things do. The Bible, Bible is honest. We live in a sin-sick world and we're all affected by it. The Bible says this, man is, it, 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 the kind of troubles are as sure to a man, to a woman, as the sparks flying upwards from the fire. That's, that's a lovely verse, isn't it? <laughs> Listen, we are assured that life isn't just going to be easy all the way. But when things do get difficult, what does it mean to me? Is it, you see, if I think I, I've earned goodness, I've earned an easy ride, or I've earned blessing from God somehow by right, by my behavior, then things go wrong. It's devastating. It's absolutely devastating and can become very fearful for, for me. I think, wow, this, somehow, what have I done? Something's gone wrong. Whereas actually we remember, no, God's, it, it rains on the just and the unjust. God's blessing is not dependent on my behavior. And sometimes God does lead us through difficult times, but he is with us. That's his promise. So is it devastating for you when things go wrong? And that can be a sign that I'm basing my relationship with God on my own uh, righteousness or my own behaviors. And the, the kicker there really is, I, I think I deserve better than this. I deserve better. And that's where the fear can come in and the devastation when life is difficult. Fifthly, Grumbling rather than thankfulness are a feature of my life. That's not really a, a personal statement, but it is a statement of fact for those people who feel, uh, who, are, who are kind of giving into the bias that my relationship with God is based on my behaviors. So grumbling rather than thankfulness is a feature. You know, grumbling is just very, very, we know it's negative, but it's also undermining of faith. It's undermining of community. It's undermining of joy. Grumbling just is like it sort of eats away. And it's like it's almost as if you know if you um, have been to the beach and you built a sandcastle and the waves kind of come in and, and you know well it looks good but actually the waves are slowly eating away at the underneath. Grumbling does that. It just eats away at at the good things that God has given. And so when grumbling, if that's, a, if that's a thing for you, then that's something to watch out for. And again, I'm watching it in myself, particularly through these trying months that we are in right now. Is my life dominated by grumbling? Well, I think I deserve better. So yeah, so why has this happened? Why has that happened? It's just, why is it always this? Why is it always that? Let's watch out for that, brothers and sisters. And sixthly, finally, in this little list of am I an older brother kind of, warnings is am I quietly self-satisfied am I proud of my own goodness you see the the root of all the problems of this older brother and of the of the Pharisee and the other story is is pride it's that self of, of, of building myself up as if standing on my own achievements and so and and thinking hey if I if I pile these up high enough I'll, I'll by rights I can start looking God in the eye because I've earned it because I've literally standing on my own achievements it's exactly what the brother said wasn't it he said I've kept your rules all these years I've behaved well surely I have the right he did have the right but it wasn't based on his 
behaviors. So we need to watch out for those things, brothers and sisters. And actually, we need to help each other in these areas too. And in our small group life, I know we're, we're separated now and often it's through Zoom, but we need to have the, the, the boldness, the, the love to tell the truth. The Bible says, tell the truth in love. You see, if you just tell the truth, it can be harsh and damaging. And if, if I'm just, oh, I just love everyone, then I never get to the root of the issue. We need both of those together. Speak the truth and love to one another. That means finding the right moment. That means being sensitive to the person's other, the rest of the person's life. But we need to help each other. I need people to help me with these things. It's what being a family is. It's what being a church is. That we'd have the boldness and the love to address these things in one another gently and kindly. Because why? Because it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about his glory being seen. It's about the love of God flowing back and forth between us and about us finding our way into the grace of God more fully. So those are some words for people who are believers and that's really where this parable kind of bites, I think. But there is, there is other things to think about. Maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer right now. And, and let me just talk to you for a moment because many people think when they think, if they think at all, about the world and the problems of the world, I wonder what you would assess as the root of the problem. And many people think this. They think the problem with the world is that people don't behave themselves well enough. If people behaved better, then the world would be in a better place. Surely that, surely that follows. People, there's not enough goodness. If people just were just a bit, there was just a bit more goodness around. If, you, if people behaved better, then it would be a better place. The, the problem is... The problem is with goodness. And, and by extension, if they do think about, about Jesus or about Christianity, they think, well, so what? That's the problem. And so the solution was this, that Jesus, Jesus came to make, make bad people good. He came to increase the level of goodness in the world uh, to the point where the whole world is affected by that. And, you know, it's a better place to live. Here's the, the flip side to that. So if I'm already a good person, if I'm already behaved pretty well, I don't really need Jesus. Why, why, why would I? I don't need Jesus. Or, you know, if we were to ever meet, I think we'd be on good terms because I'm, 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 the, I'm already the thing that he came to achieve. Good. I'm a nice guy. You know, I'm kind to people. I'm pretty generous most of the time. And I'm not belittling that. But when we think that's, that's what Jesus came to do, and that's the problem with the world. We have misunderstood everything that the Bible tells us about the world. Here's the shocker for you guys. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. That is not the message of the Bible, not even remotely, not at all. Let me just read this to you in, uh, from Ephesians chapter 2. This is telling us in a few short verses what the story of the Bible is about. What did Jesus come to do? What's the problem and how is it solved? Ephesians 2, 1 to 9, famous passage of Scripture. As for you, says Paul to the Ephesian church, you were bad, you were, uh, you know, you misbehaved. No, 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 no. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world 
and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised up Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places with him in order that in the coming ages we might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. And it's not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The problem, says Paul, the problem that we read uh, in these parables, the problem that Jesus is explaining there is not that people are bad and they need to be good. That's not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is people are dead and they need to be alive. That's what this passage says. You were dead, Christ will make you alive. It's a much, much bigger problem than than bad people being made to good. If, if the problem essentially is that bad people need to be made to behave better, then the, what's the solution? Well, it's probably mass education, you know, lots of good training, maybe, maybe good parental skills. That, that'll do it, surely. That, that'll enough. We can do that. I could achieve that, maybe. You know, I could do a bit of that. I was a teacher of primary kids, you know. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, on, I'm in the vanguard of that, of that job. But listen, if the problem is actually that, that dead people need to be made alive, I'm out. I've got, I can't do that. And of course, we're not talking about physically dead people. We're talking about spiritually dead people need to be made alive. What on earth is the solution for that? What on earth can fix that problem? The greatest minds, the, the, you know, the most skillful practitioners of all the, uh, all the disciplines in the world, they're, they're not going to get close to that. Not even close. How do you make a dead person alive? How do you take someone who's spiritually dead to God and, and introduce, how do you do this? Well, only one could do that. Only Jesus could do that. And that is the story of the Bible. And that's the story of these parables. It's not that if I just try hard, if I work hard, if I build myself up, somehow I can get close to God and I can do it through my own efforts. It's no, I need a savior. I need to be rescued. I'm dead, I need to be made alive. You see, the younger son in that first parable, he came to an end of himself. He came to his senses. He realized that. He, he realized that was the problem. The older son, here's the, the tragedy of that story, he never did. He never saw it. He never understood. It, it, you can't get credit with God on, by your behavior. You just simply couldn't do it. You couldn't possibly be holy entirely pure by your own efforts you couldn't do it and it was the humble coming to his senses that meant the son was embraced by the grace of the father and it was the fact that the second the, the older son he never did he never humbled himself and he's absent from that party at the end it's a tragedy it's why the pharisee goes away unjustified and the tax collector is embraced by God. 
Why? It's humility. It's humility. Jesus came to make dead people alive. The problem is much greater than we tend to think. And the solution is much more wonderful than we could ever imagine. Jesus gives his own life so that we can be holy. He gives us his own holiness, gives it to us. It's amazing. It's amazing grace. Okay, so back then to talking to believers. How do I mitigate this older brother tendency? How do I kind of guard against it? I've talked about things where you can tell if it's present, but how do I mitigate against it? How can I fight it and combat it? If there is that sort of bias, if, 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 if in, in, in you know, some unguarded moments that my mind goes to those things, and how do I do it? Well, here we go. Four things that will help. Cultivate gratitude. Be a grateful person, worshipful to God, thankful to others. That reminds me, it's not just my behavior that kind of sets the tone for this relationship. That's the first thing. Secondly, resist grumbling. We said that that kind of grumbling atmosphere is is part of us thinking, somehow I deserve better. Resist it. Resist it in the church. Resist it in your families. Resist it at work. Be the one that doesn't grumble. That will help. It'll, it'll just, it resets our mindset. It reminds us, oh, do you know what? There's so much to be thankful for. And grumbling can as easily squeeze the thankfulness out. Thirdly, encourage others. We were talking recently, I think, I think it was James who was preaching about this. Let's be an encouraging church. Look for things to encourage in others. As so often, looking to others, looking to bless other people is the solution to so many things that we personally deal with. And it certainly is a solution, part of it here. Look to encourage other people. Look for the evidences of God's grace in other people's lives and commend them uh, for living like that. It'll, it'll do wonders for them and it will help you to remind you it's about God's grace and not your behavior. And then finally, fourthly, on this little list, celebrate the success of others. Celebrate the success. When someone wins, whatever they win is, celebrate that success with them. The Bible says we weep with those who weep, which we do, and in one sense that's an easier one. But listen, rejoice with those who rejoice. There's a challenge, because I can feel, oh, I deserved that. Oh, I wish that was me. Now, yet we set those rather dark feelings aside, and we say, no, I celebrate. I celebrate, why? Because I see it's God's blessing. That's where it comes from. I'm celebrating God blessing you. And one day, I'm sure we'll celebrate God blessing me too. But today, it's about this person. It's about their life. It's about the the successes that they're experiencing. Now, the pinnacle of all of this, the place where this comes together most completely for, for everybody is where? It's at the communion table. This is where this comes together. It's, it's taking bread and wine. In that act, and we'll do it in a moment's time, in that act there is a reminder. It's not about me. It's not about by my, my behavior. It's all about Jesus. It reminds me but with, with, the, with the wine, with the blood. This blood had to be shed. Why? Because, because I couldn't behave well. Enough. I couldn't achieve holiness and righteousness on my own. I couldn't get anywhere near it. Blood had to be shed to, for my sins to be forgiven. 
And then as I eat bread, it reminds me, my, my, I, have, I have someone who identifies with me, someone who's, who was made in flesh, somebody who stands with me, someone who by his grace and love will never leave me, reminds me of the truth, of the solidity of what God had done in Jesus. And coming again and again, week by week to the table, as we do, is a reminder of God's grace. God's unmerited favor. You can't merit it. You can't earn it. Here it is given again. Here it is given again, week by week, coming back and reminding ourselves of God's amazing grace. Communion is one of the best ways to combat pride in our lives. That was the problem for the older son. It was the problem for the Pharisee. can be a problem for us, but there are many ways to fight against it. Brothers and sisters, the grace of God is the most outrageous and scandalous news you will ever hear. That you can't earn his love, but you can, you can receive it freely if you just ask humbly. It's all done, really? All of it? Everything I could possibly earn and inherit is done through Jesus and not through my own? Yep, that's the story. It's a scandal. It's an outrage. And ultimately, those Pharisees whose whole life was built around their own behavior. It, that was literally their, how they went about their lives and, and how, what others thought about their behavior. It's why they hated Jesus. Because he came full of grace to people who didn't behave well. Full of love for people who were rebels. And listen, you, you couldn't be a rebel like the younger son. Or you can be a rebel like the older son. Both need God's grace. And our invitation today is to come humbly to God and ask for it. And he, like that father, will run to you. He's watching, as it were. He's watching. He's hoping. He's hoping. Come to your senses, rebellious ones. Come to your senses, religious ones. Come to the feast and enjoy God's grace. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this incredible, scandalous story of your rescue plan for humanity. Thank you, Lord. It's not just you've come to help us behave ourselves better. You've come to make us who are dead alive, that we, we could know you. We could have a, a relationship that's living with you. And I pray for us, whether wherever we fit into these stories, wherever the parts of our mind fit, parts of our experiences and lives fit into the different people in the story, that you, Spirit of God, would lead us through to a place of enjoying your